Brothers and sisters, we're working our way through the Belgian Confession, and last week we started a, a three-part series on just the last line of Article 30 in the Belgian Confession, which reads, by these means, everything will be done well and in good order when faithful men are chosen in agreement with the rule that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy. So we're doing a series of sermons that's specifically looking at why it is in Jubilee Canadian Reformed Church we choose only faithful, qualified men to the offices of the church. And this is a big subject, and it's a, a debated subject and a subject that's alive and well in the broader culture in which we live, so we're dedicating three sermons to this subject in general. And my hope and my prayer is, is that by the end of these three sermons, we might be able to resonate with Psalm 119, verse 12, also concerning this uh, teaching of our church and practice of our church of electing only qualified men to the office of deacon, uh, deacon and elder, that we would, along the path of truth, run and leap, for your commands have enlarged my understanding. Really, brothers and sisters, this, this whole topic that we're looking at comes down to whether or not we are willing to tremble before the word of God. Are we willing to tremble before the word of God as the very word of God and follow it? Or are we gonna tremble before the culture around us and follow it? Are we gonna be disciples of Jesus? Are we gonna follow his word? Or are we gonna be disciples of the broader culture and follow the word of whoever is speaking at this moment in time? The word of God, scripture says, is like a double-edged sword. It cuts down into us and divides us. It cuts against the culture of the world in all the areas that the culture of this world teaches things that are unbiblical. That's what the word of God does. But here's the thing. The word of God is a double-edged sword and it cuts both ways. It also cuts against the church in all the ways that the church does not follow the word of God. And this is something we confess with great importance as a reformed church. One of the, the great sayings or slogans of the Reformation was semper reformanda, which is that the church is always being reformed by the Lord according to his word. Semper reformanda, that the church is always being reformed by the Lord according to his word. And that this word is a double-edged sword, cuts into culture, but it also cuts into our own life and the life of the church. And Masex continuously examine whether we're conforming ourselves to the word of God or whether we're conforming ourselves to something else. This is the second sermon in this series. Next week, we're gonna hold the word of God and we're gonna tremble before it and we're going to explain why in the face of a culture that shakes its head at us, why we choose only qualified men to the offices of the church. This week, in preparation for that, what we're gonna do is we're gonna tremble before the word of God and we're gonna look at the role that women play in the New Testament church in scripture and we're gonna ask ourselves, are we following it? or are we following some other tradition? Are we allowing and encouraging the women of the church to fill every role that the New Testament church gives them, that the scriptures give them, or are we doing something else? And the reasons we're doing this is very, very important. First and foremost, because this is the Bible, this is the word of God, and we need to conform to it. 
And second, of, and also because, of course, we're reformed, semper reformanda, we, we eagerly ask the Lord to continuously reform us as a church according to his word. But also because of this. If we try to rightly defend the biblical position that we choose only qualified men to the offices of the church, if we try to defend that while at the same time maintaining a, a tradition, a culture, a fence around that doctrine, that wrongly or unbiblically restricts women from doing what they, scripture allows them to do in the church, then we shoot ourselves in the foot. And we end up pushing people farther away from the biblical teaching of choosing only qualified men to the offices of the church. So the question that I'd like to, to look at today, or the topic that I would look to look at this afternoon, is, is what is the role that we see women playing in the New Testament church in Scripture? And then ask ourselves that question, are we allowing, encouraging women to fulfill every role the Bible makes available to them? And so I'm gonna do that in three parts. We're gonna look at some New Testament teaching, we're gonna draw some lessons from history, and we're gonna make some applications for today. So first, the New Testament teaching. Before we get to, to, Romans 16, uh, to Romans 16, it's interesting, and it has been interesting to scholars throughout history, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the gospel authors that write us the gospels, give women a role and honor that is not, was not found in the broader culture of Jesus' day. It's interesting that the, the biblical authors choose to recount the story of Jesus' birth in a way that men tend to be in the background. That's not means to say that men were not playing important roles in that story, but that's the way they choose to describe it. It's interesting that they do that given their culture. Mary is inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes a song that the gospel writers put in the Holy Scripture. Anna is described as a prophetess who proclaims the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ to all those who are waiting for the Messiah. Men tend to be in the background in that story. The Jewish uh, historian Josephus tells us that men did not talk to women in public in Judaism at the time of Jesus. That men didn't talk to women in public, but the gospel stories are full of Jesus doing just that, isn't it? Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman by the well. He talks to Mary and Martha. He does that privately, but he also does that publicly. And of course, Jesus also teaches women. We have many stories of Jesus teaching woman, women. The ancient Jewish commentary on the Torah, uh, on, the, on the books of Moses, called the Talmud, is, uh, says this, it is foolishness to teach Torah to your daughter. That was sort of what the, the rabbis of Jesus' day taught. They looked at Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, which says, teach the scriptures to your sons, and they said, quote, women are to be exempt from the commandment to learn the law of Moses. And we see that in the gospel stories, Jesus doing something very different. Michael Horton says this, Mary broke the stereotype by being catechized by Jesus when her sister Martha thought she should be making coffee for the next group. Jesus allows a woman to wash his feet. Jesus teaches parables to women and mentions women as examples in his parables. When Jesus rises from the dead in his sovereign control, he allows it to be women who were the first witnesses to that resurrection and who are the first to proclaim the good news of Jesus' resurrection to others. Something very countercultural, especially given the culture in the day which didn't account the witness of women like they counted the witness of men. 
And so it seems that in the Gospels, Jesus himself, as well as the Gospel authors who uh, bring the stories of Jesus together, go out of their way to honor women in their culture. If you see that then, uh, when Jesus rises and ascends into heaven, sends his spirit on his people, you see in the book of Acts that the, the New Testament church, the apostles, the disciples, they just follow on with that same example that Jesus laid out for them. When the disciples returned from the Mount of Olives, uh, when Jesus ascended, they joined together in prayer. They had a prayer meeting, and it's immediately mentioned that women were also there. Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They especially mention that. They especially mention it. The sisters in the church are also part of the 120 people who pray when they draw a lot to choose Matthias as an apostle to replace Judas Iscariot. And then, of course, when Pentecost comes, it's everybody who's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just men, it's men and women. And so when Peter preaches his sermon at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he preaches that and confirms the prophecy of Joel. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days. So Peter makes a point of quoting that piece of, New Te- of Old Testament scripture in order to announce that something radically new is happening. The spirit has descended on men and on women. And then you read the book of Acts and you see that just played out. You see somebody named Philip who has four daughters in Acts 21 and these are daughters that prophesy publicly. In 1 Corinthians 11 verses four through five, Paul mentions that women in the church are both praying and prophesying publicly in the church. In Acts 18, verse 26, Priscilla or uh, Prisca is explaining the way of God more accurately to Apollos along with her husband. And then, of course, the sign of the covenant, which in the Old Testament was circumcision, which happened only to men, is now changed by the Lord so that it goes to both men and women. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament church, simply following the example and the teaching of Jesus, give women their rightful place in the community of God. And so as you go on then and read the rest of the New Testament, notice the New Testament authors speaking in such a way to highlight that access to God's grace is equally and generously available to men and to women. Both men and women are the children of God. They're both one in the Lord. Nobody is more privileged than the other. Nobody is uh, is given a, a better or a more beautiful place in the kingdom of God. And so when we look at Romans 16, for instance, at the end of this letter of Romans, we read that Paul mentions numerous uh, women in his list of people that he would like to greet and to thank, Phoebe and Mary and Junia and Persis and Julia and Typhenia and Tryphosia and Nurus's sister and Rufus's mother. And he calls uh, Udoya and Sintasha and Prisca co-workers in Christ. He calls these women co-workers in Christ. John Calvin translates that as meaning fellow soldiers in the gospel. And then he goes on to state, Paul did not dismiss having a woman as his associate in the work of the Lord, nor was he ashamed to confess this. And that's what you would expect, wouldn't you? For the apostles who had learnt from Jesus and saw how he treated women and understood the Holy Spirit was poured out on all men and women. Later in the letter to the Galatians, he stresses again this unity and this equality that we have in Christ. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ, there's now neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And so we see in the New Testament that in faith, men 
and women, they stand shoulder to shoulder as co-heirs in Christ. Both men and women are given the privilege to fight the good fight of faith. Both are called to confess God's name publicly. Both men and women are obliged to use their gifts in his service. And so we confess as a church in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12 that all members, both men and women, share in the anointing of Christ, and so we're all prophets or prophetesses. And we're all priests or priestesses. We're all kings, queens in Christ. And so here at Jubilee, we enthusiastically and without a hint of shame declare that we believe that only qualified men can be chosen to the leadership of the church. But the teaching of Scripture ought to warn us to be careful not to get too fixated on the role of the office bearers. As if the role of the office bearers is what defines what ministry is in the church and defines everything. After all, the majority of the commands and the majority of the responsibilities in the New Testament are given to all members. The majority of what we read in the scripture is for everybody, for all of you, for men and for women. Regardless of gender, we're all told to love one another, to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to live in a harmony with one another, to build one another up, men and women building each other up, to admonish one another, to greet one another, to serve one another, to bear each other's burdens, to forgive one another, and to speak the truth in love to one another, to be kind and compassionate to one another, to submit to one another, to consider ourselves better than our, uh, uh, consider others better than ourselves, to look out for the interests of one another in the church, all of us, to teach one another in song, to comfort one another, to encourage one another. All men and women in the church are told to exhort one another, to stir up or provoke and stimulate others to love and good works, to employ the gifts that the Lord has given us for the benefit of one another, to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, to pray for one another, and we do all of this together regardless of whether we're a man or a woman because we are all, Scripture says, members of one another in Romans 12.5 and Ephesians 4.25. We're all members of one another. So, let me finish in this first point, this, this first very brief survey of New Testament teaching with a quote from Dr. K. Deddins. Now, is that your grandfather, Justin? Yeah, so Justin's grandfather, he was, uh, he's passed away now, but he used to be a professor at the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. He was the professor of ecclesiology of the doctrine of the church. And I have something very interesting in my possession. I don't know if you know this, but Justin's grandfather, uh, he wrote a little booklet about the role of women in the church, um, but it never got published. So it's not a non-published booklet, it was written in Dutch, and recently somebody translated it in English, and I have a copy. And so I'd like to read you a quote from, from what he says. This is Dr. K. Deddins. Christ not only, but I should just tell you, it's a book, that, a little booklet where he, he's contrasting um, worldly desire for the emancipation, uh, sort of a feminist philosophy of the emancipation of women and biblical liberty for women as we find it in scripture. Here he says, Christ not only removed and bridled the tyranny men had over women, he liberated them. They possess freedom in God through Jesus Christ. This is not an unbridled freedom of a revolutionary emancipation rooted in the devil, but rather it's a unique liberty that allows them to follow Christ in his beautiful service. 
Women, a woman who, first, uh, who tempted the first Adam may now follow the second Adam unburdened by the curse to serve him with her gifts, especially with the love of her heart and the faith in the Lord. No less than man, the woman who follows Christ may share in the benefits of the atonement. Besides the man, she receives a place in the congregation of Christ. She shares in the same baptism. At the same Lord's supper table, she sits with the men and together they struggle in the same challenges of the faith. So that for our, 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 our quick brief survey of what scripture teaches. Now some lessons from church history. Around the fourth century when the emperor Constantine becomes a Christian and he stops persecution, what ends up happening is that many people now become Christians, many people join the church. And what happens as that progresses is the church becomes, uh, the church hierarchy becomes more established and there is a transition to what we would call a state church. And what also happens in this period is that the role of women in the church in worship decreases and that men and women become more and more segregated. What we also see uh, during this period is the disappearance of the role of the deaconess. So Romans 16 verse one says, I commend to you my sister, sister Phoebe, a servant, and then I've got a little footnote number, and if you look down it says, or deaconess. And the translators here have made a choice to put servant rather than deaconess, but the word is the same word. Uh, and what is, what is undoubted, what is uncontested, across historians is that in the early church, after the New Testament period, during the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, there were deaconesses. That is uncontested history, all right? Dr. K. Deddens, again, says this, to quote, over time, the role of deaconesses steadily eroded. At the end of the fourth century, they were not functioning anymore in Jerusalem, and around 394, the Synod of Nimes forbade the use of deacons. In the East, however, deaconesses were employed into the 11th century. This office disappeared entirely in the West as the Council of uh, Orange in 441 AD and the Councils of Epone in 517 and Orleans in 511 forbade the ordination of deacons. At the latter council, women were officially excluded because of the frailty of her gender. And at the Second Synod of Masson in 581, a discussion was generated by one of the bishops who maintained that women cannot be called humans. According to the Council of Auxerre in 580, women were not allowed to touch the bread of the Eucharist, that is the bread of the Lord's Supper, with bare hands because otherwise they would defile it, end quote. Dr. Deddens goes on to explain the great influence of Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. Thomas Aquinas, a, a, a very, uh, influential Roman Catholic uh, theologian who considered women to be inferior to men. The man was the object and the, or the, was the ruler of the woman, the woman was deficient and faulty, a creature of lesser intellect compared to men. And so Deden states that this tremendous influence of Thomas Aquinas in the church meant that women practically disappeared from congregational life. The ideal woman, the model woman, became the one who disappeared behind the walls of the nunnery. Nuns completely replaced the ministry of deaconesses. So now fast forward to the time of the Reformation. The Reformation was a, was a great reformation in terms of theology. It was also reforming the views of how we understood men and women in the church. Luther preached about women in the Bible 
specifically to prove that women could show leadership in church. And if you know something about Luther's, Luther's wife, you know that she was a, a leader in her, uh, in her own right. If it happens, says Luther in a sermon written in 1522, he says, if it happens that there is no man present, then a woman can step up and preach to others as best she can. That was a revolutionary thing for him to say. John Calvin, the great reformer, and a great study of church history, goes back and, uh, and, and studies early church history and discovers that, hey, there used to be the office of a deaconess or office of a deacon. And so Calvin wants to bring that back. He makes a distinction between two types of deacon, deacon one that's responsible for the keeping of alm, alms and financially keeping care of the needy, and another group that would engage especially the women of the church and they're looking after the sick in the church, and those were the deaconesses. He wanted that to be a recognized office. Calvin's own views on this uh, particular point were adopted in the Articles of Wesel, uh, Weasel in, in 1568. However, the practice of a woman's diaconate did not last very long in the Reformed churches of the Netherlands, for instance. The Dutch theologian, theologian Voitius, I'm not quite sure how to present, uh, pronounce his first name, G-I-J-S, Bertus, uh, he was a, a Dutch Calvinist theologian in the, in the 15-1600s. He was the youngest delegate to the uh, Synod of Dort, from which we get our, our, our canons of Dort. And in 1634, he was appointed the professor of theology at the University of Utrecht. He was in favor of Calvin's view of deaconesses, uh, but he didn't want to see them uh, recognized as a separate office. He disagreed with Calvin on that. He thought they should just be assistants to the deacons. And then Dr. Deddens, my, my secret, or my, my, my special tool that I'm using today, states this, actually it can be questioned whether this leading Calvinist thinker considered women to be totally human and whether they were created in the image of God. Other theologians also maintain that women were inferior to men and totally subordinate to, totally subordinate to men, end of quote. So this tradition of, of uh, women deacons or deaconesses, you still find that amongst a select group of, re, group of Reformed churches today. Our Reformed Presbyterian brothers uh, have that. The ERQ, the church that I used to be a pastor of, had female deacons. Not as a modern development, not as a development that's catering to outside pressure of the culture within us, but something that goes back to a more ancient practice. So if you look at then the summary of what we've, uh, we've seen in the New Testament church, how women, what role women had, and then you look at the, the history, the summary, the very short brief history that I've looked at, you would come to the conclusion that the tendency, the tendency in church history has been to restrict women's role in the church to something less than we find in the New Testament. That, that would be the conclusion you'd go to. And then you would say that Calvin and Luther did their best to restore a more of a biblical balance to the way men and women work together in the church, understanding that both Calvin and Luther thought that we ought to choose only qualified men to the leadership of the church, but they tried to restore more of a biblical balance going back to the ancient church. So now then, knowing, knowing those things, knowing what we've, what we've briefly surveyed in scripture and then what we've talked about through history, let's think about, well, what about for us today? What should we think about that? What would be some applications for today? Let me suggest a number of things. Number one, we should make sure that women are learning along with men. 1 Timothy 2.11 says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness and our tendency is to jump on the quietly with all submissiveness and forget that the very radical part of that sentence in Paul's day was let a woman learn 
That was, that was the one that people would have been like, what? Let a woman learn. And I think that in general, we do that pretty well here in Jubilee. We, we have catechism classes and profession of faith classes and small group Bible studies, and we, we don't tend to treat women and men differently in those. We want uh, women to study the same kind of things that men study, and we don't set up sort of differences in regards to that kind of learning. It's interesting that when Paul charges Titus in Titus 2 that, uh, to, to teach sound doctrine, he specifically notes that he has to teach sound doctrine also to women. And so he's pointing out that women need to be, along with men, the target audience for a pastor's teaching and ministry. And so I'd ask you to help me to do that well. Uh, as a man, I don't always understand what goes on in a woman's life. And so I want to do a good job on being able to teach in a, in, a, in a good way that speaks also to the hopes and the temptations and the joys and the difficulties of women in the congregation. And just so out of the example, perhaps you can, perhaps this is, this is not worth anything, but it dawned on me as I, I, was, I was preparing the sermon, I was like, yeah, so remember last summer I organized a, 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 a book reading club over the summer with, for the men in the congregation. That's a great thing to do, I'm happy for that. But I didn't organize one for the women and some of the women got together and did that anyways. But, and, and that's okay, I don't feel bad about that or something, but there is the tendency for a male preacher to easily do things for the men and to get together with men and not necessarily for the women. Whereas Paul tells Titus specifically to make sure you're doing both. And so I would welcome your suggestions and your, uh, your, your help on doing a better job at that as a pastor, as a preacher. The second application, to ensure that there are ways in which women can serve in the church of God. And I think, again, here at Jubilee, we're doing quite a good job at that. If you look at uh, all of the different opportunities to serve, all the volunteer opportunities in our church uh, uh, that are available, all of the teams in our church are open to men and to women. We have, you know, we don't uh, segregate uh, along gender lines for all those different teams. I think we're doing a good job on together being willing to create an environment where we can all obey the call of God in all those one another texts and I personally am thankful for both men and women in this church that will encourage me and exhort me and teach me and, and speak the truth and love to me in ways that encourage me. I'm thankful for that, and I think that we, we're doing a pretty good job in that. I do think that at some point in time it would be helpful for, for us to think through as a church, as broader Canadian Reformed churches, to think through what John Calvin taught about the role of women in serving the sick and serving other women in the role of deaconess. I think that we ought to grapple with that. Right? Uh, the ERQ has done some good exegetical work on that and that's not at all me saying, well, you know, because that's what Winston wants, so that we should try to push the limits to try to become a little bit more open or something. No, let's, let's be semper reformanda. Let's, let's look at what our, our reform heritage and the early church did, and let's see if we can learn from that, and perhaps there's things that we ought to change in ways that we ought to uh, be more faithful to allowing our sisters to take up all the roles and responsibilities that the New Testament offers to them. Number three, I think that uh, based on what we have uh, looked at in, in, in the New Testament is that we should allow women to pray and to prophesy publicly as they did in the early church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul mentions, he says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And if you read through that passage, 
lots of interesting things in there. It talks about this head covering or this veil. Uh, scholars are now pretty much unanimous on what that means. There's been some very good uh, research done by somebody named Bruce Winter and others who have demonstrated that during uh, that time period, women in that area would have worn a veil. Married women would have worn a veil or would have worn a head covering that demonstrated that they were married. Right? So non-married women wouldn't necessarily have to wear that. And so Paul is trying to uh, teach the women in the church that, look, uh, women in the church have liberty to pray and to prophesy in public, but you have to not do that in a way that uh, disrespects your husband. You don't throw off your headscarf and pretend as if you're not married or that marriage doesn't exist. So when you read that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, you notice two things. Paul is taking very seriously the headship of men in marriage and in the church, and he's also demonstrating that women indeed can pray and prophesy in the public meetings of Corinth as long as they do that in a respectful way. And if you read the, the, the letters of Paul to Corinth, they're filled full of correction. He's correcting them on a whole bunch of things, but he doesn't correct them or try to tell them that they should forbid women from praying or prophesying in public. Now, if, if you know the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians, then immediately you may be thinking, yes, but just in a couple chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, Paul states that women should be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. And if you, so if you read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, it seems like you have a contradiction on your hands. It seems like he's saying two things. And here again, Dr. K. Deddens, as well as many other Reformed scholars, do a very good job on, on helping us understand, especially 1 Corinthians 14, 34, that we have to read that in context. We can't just take that out and make it mean what we want. We have to read it in context. That it's obvious that 1 Corinthians 14 has to do with married women specifically, that he's not specifically talking even about prophesying, but in the context about speaking, in the verifying and the weighing of prophecy, which is what the passage is talking about. And that Paul's concern is again that married women would not act in shameful ways or in disgraceful ways toward their husbands. Now, I realize that taking those two texts merits a whole sermon in itself, and perhaps, you know, perhaps I'll get a chance to do that in the future. But Paul doesn't contradict himself. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Men and women, it is obvious that men and women both prayed and prophesied in the New Testament church. And we have very early church fathers right after the New Testament period that, uh, that demonstrated that as well. And so you might find that surprising, but brothers and sisters, let's tremble before the word of God. Let's tremble before the word of God. Women should pray in public. We do that already, of course, in small group, in Bible studies, at school meetings, in various other venues. We already do that. But I think we have to be careful that we, we don't restrict women in this area. So to give you, a, to give you an example, not to, not to say anything bad whatsoever to our dear chairman of the consistory, but at this past week's congregational meeting, at the end of the congregational meeting, it was asked if there was a man who would be willing to stand up and pray. I think it would be better if we would have said, is there a member who would have liked to stand up and pray? That we ought not to restrict that to say an unordained man can pray, but not an unordained woman. woman. Secondly, women prophesying in public. There's quite a bit of debate as, amongst scholars in the, in the New Testament understanding what, 
when, what kind of prophecies existed there in the New Testament? And there seems to be a different kinds. And a minimum, you would have to say, at a very minimum, that prophecy in the New Testament had to do with speaking in, in edifying biblical ways to others. In Lord's Day 12, we are called as Christians, male and female, that we confess the name of Christ, share in his anointing as prophets. And if you look at the, the Lord's Day 12 and you look at the, the scripture footnotes for us being all prophets, all of the fo- scripture footnotes talk about public prophecy, prophecy in public. And so we would deny scripture and our confessions if we would deny women to the ability to speak in edifying biblical ways also in public as the church. So except for the authoritative teaching and disciplinary role that the Bible reserves for qualified men ordained to office, we should allow women to participate as long as, as they did in the New Testament alongside men as co-heirs in Christ and to do so in biblical ways that include as married women to do so in respectful ways uh, in regards to their husband. And we actually do this already in so many ways. Nobody reads 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and says that women should be silent in the church totally. Nobody, nobody says that, that women shouldn't sing in church. Women, of course, sing in church and recite creeds and, and answer with the call and response in our liturgy and stand up and give vows before the church. And women teach, catechism, uh, teach kingdom kids and catechism classes and lead small groups. At our seminary, the Canadian Reform Seminary, there are female lecturers that come in and teach students. At the last ministerial that we had for all the URC and Canadian Reform pastors that came together, one of the sessions was taught to us by a woman. So we already do this. Some of you uh, brothers might remember when we we, uh, crossed the border for one of our men's conferences and we had that Egyptian URC pastor, I forget his name, uh, he spoke with us and he encouraged us to to say, you know, we need to have an engaging conversational style and also in preaching. He encouraged us to say, you know, just giving a monologue like I'm doing now, he says, you ought to also be willing to engage with the conversation in some question and response. And then he stated, I know some of you might feel that that feels awkward because then you might have a woman who asks a question or responds, but he encouraged us to say, no, if you study scripture, you find that that's, that is allowed, that, that that is okay in the New Testament church. In the Reformation tradition, uh, there were often readers uh, during the worship service where a reader would, uh, someone that wasn't the pastor or necessarily even an elder, would, uh, would read a passage of scripture. And we have some sister churches that allow also women in the congregation to read scripture in public during the worship service. And I'm not saying that, that therefore we ought to do that, but it does make us, uh, I think that it would be worthwhile for us to consider what happens in the worship service that is only the place of qualified, faithful, ordained men in the office of elder, that, that that's exclusive to them. Is there anything else that would not be exclusive to ordained office bearers? Maybe there's not. But if there is, if there's something that we would allow unordained men to do, then we ought to at least examine the possibility of we should, whether or not we should be also opening that to unordained women, of course. Except for the authoritative teaching disciplinary role of the Bible, uh, that the Bible reserves for the qualified men ordained to the office of leadership, we should allow women to participate as they did in the New Testament, as co-heirs in Christ. This uh, last application, women should be missionaries. I don't know how many of you uh, watched the videos that, uh, that came out from the last Canadian Reform Theological Seminary Missions Conference, but there was a, there was a moment in that conf- conference that was not just awkward, but rather uh, filled with irony. 
I was at the conference in just outside the main conference hall in the, in the big hallway there. They had a big book table, beautiful book table, all kinds of selection. And they had a whole selection about biographies of missionaries. And I counted over 50% of those biographies were the biographies of female missionaries, of women missionaries, all right? During the conference, during the question and answer period after one of the speeches, there were two Canadian Reformed missionaries standing up at the front. A woman stood up during question and answer period and asked, you've been speaking a lot about the need for men to go into missions, what about women? And they just totally were unable to answer. They just fumbled. They fumbled the question horrifically. I talked to a woman later on in that conference and she said, yeah, it was so discouraging. So discouraging. Unable to deal with the question about women on the mission field, despite the fact that the hallway is full of biographies about female missionaries. The Great Commission of Matthew 28 applies to brothers and sisters in the church. Praise the Lord. Jesus sends the Samaritan woman as a missionary to her own people. Anna the prophetess proclaims the good news of the birth of Jesus. Jesus tells women to go tell the men about his resurrection. And in Romans 16, uh, Paul is, is calling women his fellow workers, his fellow missionaries, his co-workers, his fellow soldiers in the gospel. In the second century, Clement of Alexandria wrote that the apostles were accompanied on their missionary journeys by women who were not marriage partners but colleagues, that they might be their fellow ministers in dealing with housewives. It was through them that the Lord's teaching penetrated also into the women's quarters without any scandal being aroused. We also know about the directions of women deacons, which are given by the noble Paul in his letter to Timothy. The books on the table at that, that conference spoke about the fact that there have been hundreds, hundreds, of single and married women that have answered the call of Christ on their own or with their husbands by becoming full-time missionaries. And I pray that we would see the same here also in Jubilee, that men and women would decide to go into the foreign mission field. So what conclusion do we come to then? We enthusiastically, unashamedly affirm that qualified male-only leadership in this church as office bearers at Jubilee. And there's gonna be one more sermon dealing specifically with why scripture teaches that. But we also, uh, before, before we get there, we wanna tremble before the word of God, brothers and sisters. We don't just want the culture out there to tremble before it. We want the culture in here to tremble before the word of God that cuts like a double-edged sword against the culture outside of the doors of the church, but also cuts against the culture inside the church. That we might be semper reformanda. That this church also here in Ottawa, the Lord might be gracious to us and continuously reform us according to his word. I'd be happy to stick around after the worship service to answer any questions that you might have about this sermon. May we, in obedience to God, encourage both men and women to fulfill every role that the Bible makes available to them so that when church leaders in this church, in the future, today and in the future, write letters, those letters might resemble Paul's letter in Romans chapter 16 and include examples of both men and women as co-workers for the cause of the gospel. May God bless us and may it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Father in heaven, 
Lord, please reform us according to your word. Reform us according to your word. Pray, Lord, that you would outpour your Holy Spirit on us so that we can resist this demonic historical tendency to, f- to restrict women's role in the church more than Scripture demands or allows. May we resist the temptation to fence and hedge our commitments to qualified male-only leadership by restricting the role of women in the church in unbiblical ways. Help us to stand firm and confident and enthusiastic about what Scripture teaches. Help us to tremble before your word. Reform us, Lord. And we praise you and thank you for your design for church leadership. And we look forward to learning more about that. Accept our humble prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.